Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to manage your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better informing the general public about mental health issues. And all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back again. I uh, have a lot to talk to you about that I hope you'll find interesting if you are interested in mental health news and staying up to date and just hearing interesting things about how our mind and our emotions work and maybe pick up some important tips along the way. Well, let's start with this article about cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, you probably know cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of psychotherapy that's much more pragmatic and problem-focused than just going to someone and talking in an open-ended way about your problems. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy seeks to get someone to stop negative thinking patterns and replace them with more positive ones and to target specific behaviors for change. Uh, now, it's a very specific technique. It requires training and certification. Not every therapist is expert in practicing it. And the point of this article is that, unfortunately, not every patient will respond well to it. But if someone is going to enter into cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, it's a significant investment in time as well as money. So unfortunately, in most cases, health insurance doesn't cover psychotherapy of any type, or if it does, the coverage is very limited. So what if researchers had a way of being able to tell in advance if someone would respond to cognitive behavioral therapy or not? That would be interesting and exciting, wouldn't it? You scan someone's brain and say, oh, you know what, based on your results, you're a great candidate for cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's let you find someone, and most likely the treatment's going to be successful. Or someone else's brain scan would say, eh, you know what, you really don't look like a good candidate for cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's just try something else, perhaps medication or some other treatment but let's not waste your time and money on that. Sound far-fetched? Probably, and as yet, it still is, but let's look at what some researchers found. Now, again, cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of therapy that is centered on helping people to recognize and break negative patterns of thinking. 
It is more or less the gold standard when it comes to talk therapies. Uh, older types like psychoanalysis or things like that are long, long since passe. Now, research has shown there's a very strong, robust base of evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy can help people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, insomnia, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders, perhaps even special phobias like heights, or even going to the dentist. But uh, that, that doesn't mean it's a perfect type of therapy. Despite all of this success, it still only works for about half of all those who try it. And researchers aren't really sure why some patients respond while others languish without improvement. So if we could tell in advance which patients will be unlikely to benefit from CBT, that's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, precious time and resources could be saved by offering them alternative forms of psychotherapy or drug treatment. And we aren't there yet, but an exciting new finding points in that direction. Researchers report in the journal Social, Cognitive, and Affective Neuroscience that they were able to predict from socially anxious patients' brain activity whether they would respond positively to a course of CVT. The researchers recruited 32 men and women ages 18 to 55, all of whom had been previously diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. Some also had depression or panic disorder, and none were on medications or currently in therapy for their psychological problems. The researchers started out by scanning the participants' brains while they completed a task in which they were asked to look at strings of letters and press one specific keyboard key anytime they saw the letter X and another whenever they saw the letter N. This is a test of their ability to concentrate. Crucially, sometimes an angry or scared face appeared in the background. Socially anxious people are known to be very sensitive to and distracted by such socially threatening images, while other times the faces had a less distracting, neutral expression. Within a week of the brain scanning, all of the participants began a 12-week course of once-a-week CBT. Uh, the 12 weeks is pretty standard. Uh, again, uh, CBT is designed to last 12 weeks. Um, again, it's much less open-ended and much more problem-focused and pragmatic than just typical run-of-the-mill psychotherapy. Um, <clears throat> and it's designed to be wrapped up in 12 weeks or three months. Now, the key question was whether specific aspects of the participants' brain activity in response to distracting images of social threat would be related to how well they responded to the course of CBT. The result is that brain activity during the task was related to the subsequent outcomes achieved through CBT. 
Specifically, the more the participants' brain activity showed signs that they struggled to control the, the distracting effect of the fearful or angry faces during the task, the more they tended to benefit from the CBT. That is, the more their self-reported anxiety symptoms were decreased over the course of their CBT treatment. Now, to get specific, the way they saw that the people were struggling to control the distracting effect of the fearful or angry faces during the task is that the brain scans showed there was extra or increased activity in an area of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. This is a brain structure involved in managing conflicting attentional demands. <clears throat> now, levels of activity in other, mostly frontal brain regions, also correlated with success with CBT, such as an area called the supplementary motor area. These are regions all involved in managing conflicting demands during times of distraction. The implication is that patients who struggle more at a neuronal level with the distracting effects of social threat, such as a glimpse of a concerned frown or a disapproving glare, have the most to gain from CBT. Researchers liken this finding to a biomarker for revealing who will be suitable for this form of therapy. Their results are very preliminary. At a minimum, more research is needed with bigger samples and also a control group. But the, these results add to similar results for other diagnoses. For example, during the last few years, related findings have emerged for depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. In each case, brain activity levels during a task featuring threatening stimuli have been related to later outcomes from CBT. These are encouraging results that offer a tantalizing hint for what one day may soon be a routine approach to pre-therapy assessment. However, there are certainly reasons not to get too carried away. For one thing, this study looked at findings averaged across the group as a whole, so we're not at the point yet where we can scan an individual's brain and predict how well they'll fare with CBT. For another, while this study found that patients who struggle to manage social threat benefited more from CBT, another recent study by the same group effectively drew the opposite conclusion, that patients whose brain activity suggested they were better able to manage social threat, gained more from CBT. The difference may have to do with the fact that CBT is multi <coughs> multifaceted. For example, it involves work on changing habits of thought, but also includes intentional exposure to sources of fear. Either way, before this approach reaches the clinic, the researchers are going to have to untangle some important details. 
And while scientists are apparently edging closer to using brain scanning as a way to predict who will benefit most from CBT, this is not to be confused with the mistaken idea that it's possible to diagnose mental illness with a brain scan, as has been misleadingly touted by TV psychiatrist Daniel Amen and his chain of Amen clinics, among others. On this point, mark the words of the American Psychiatric Association in its consensus statement published in 2012, quote, there are no currently brain imaging biomarkers that are currently clinically useful for any diagnostic category in psychiatry. All right, we'll wrap up our thoughts on this article when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Daryl Polis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. In the earlier segment when we were just talking about how researchers are looking at whether brain scans will help predict whether somebody can respond to cognitive behavioral therapy or not, The main take-home point here is that there needs to be much better ways of individually tailoring treatment for mental health problems. Uh, What this research and other studies like it is trying to address is the situation that someone with any kind of mental health problem needs treatment, but as of yet, uh, we mental health practitioners do not have any way of knowing in advance what type of treatment they will respond to. So we try to individually tailor their treatment uh, based on 
our evaluation of that patient, our clinical experience in treating these problems, and also hopefully taking into account the patient's preferences as to what treatment options uh, they are most interested in. Uh, however, it's still unfortunately uh, kind of a hit or miss prospect. <clears throat> and so it definitely would be very, very helpful to have some way <clears throat> of doing a test in advance to say, okay, well, looks like you would best respond to this type of treatment, which certainly seem to improve successful treatment outcomes. Uh, but there are still a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. Uh, let's say this technique using these brain scans were to be confirmed and refined using much larger samples. Uh, let's assume that did happen someday. Well, that's fine. Are health insurance companies going to pay for expensive brain scans just for the sake of finding out what type of psychotherapy the patient would or would not respond to? Unfortunately, that's highly unlikely. Um, health insurance companies would say, look, this brain scan is very expensive. You don't really need to do that. Uh, just put them in CBT and see what happens. Or better yet, even CBT is too expensive for the health insurance company's taste. Why not just have the primary care physician, not even a psychiatrist, give them some pills and they'll get better with that and it'll be far less costly for the health insurance companies to have to pay for. You know, I hate to sound so cynical, but that's really the way things go with healthcare nowadays. Um, but again, to get back to the main take-home message, whether it's these brain scans or other methods, uh, it is important that researchers are looking for ways to individually tailor treatment for patients and uh, try to achieve some level of predictability as to who will respond to what type of treatment. All right, well, next up on Psychiatry Today, let's look at the effect of ADHD on relationships. Now, um, this article talks about how certain relationship problems may be due to undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, there is an estimated 10 million adults who have ADHD, which stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Again, the term ADD is no longer considered official terminology, so it's all called ADHD, whether you have hyperactivity or not. There's inattentive only type, there's hyperactive impulsive type, and there's the combined type, which has features of both of the first two types I mentioned, but it's all called ADHD, not ADD. In any case, many of the symptoms, distractibility, impulsivity, disorganization, forgetfulness, and inability to tolerate boredom, turn typical marital arguments into long, hard, hurtful wars. These symptoms can disrupt life and cause a downward spiral of misunderstandings. The presence of ADHD encourages very specific patterns in relationships, and some of the most damaging of those 
are misinterpretation of symptoms. According to Melissa Orlov, a marriage consultant and the author of The ADHD Effect on Marriage. Just want to mention here that uh, Ms. Orlov's book is one of many references you could find nowadays. Uh, lots and lots of sources examining the effect of ADHD on relationships. Now, in couples where undiagnosed ADHD is present, these patterns can be painful, but they can also be helpful signs pointing to the disorder. So here are some patterns to watch for. One of the most common patterns in an ADHD relationship is that one partner does a disproportionate amount of work in the household because it's equally difficult for people with the disorder to initiate tasks and to complete them. One partner is always nagging, the other is always defensive. Household chores and childcare are typically unstructured and creating a structure to do something it is typically not an ADHD strong point. In addition, often there is the parent-child dynamic where the non-ADHD partner is in a dominant role over the ADHD spouse. That's an unhealthy dynamic for the relationship, obviously. Adding to this problem is the easily distracted nature of the ADHD spouse, which can be misinterpreted as a lack of romantic interest. Speaking of children, the disorder is inherited, so sometimes the biggest clue to adult ADHD is when his or her child is diagnosed. Another source of tension, the ADHD spouse doesn't do his or her share, shows up late, or can't seem to keep a job, or is forgetful, but it's not for lack of trying or at least pledging to try. It's a mismatch between good intentions and actual follow-through. Well, <clears throat> what if you're listening to this and you say, well, that sounds like us, sounds like me and my partner, what do you do? Well, first thing is, get a professional diagnosis. Checking out online resources is a great start, but it's a good idea to get a full evaluation from a medical professional, especially because ADHD can sometimes come along with depression, learning disorders, and anxiety. Uh, you cannot diagnose ADHD by taking an online survey on a website or something in the back of a magazine or reading the book Driven to Distraction and swearing it sounds like your life story. Sorry, that's not how you figure out whether you have ADHD or not. And by the way, while I'm at it, I'll also tell you that your primary care physician cannot and should not make a diagnosis of ADHD. Sorry, they're not qualified to do that. And for those of you who've had your kid's pediatrician diagnose it, well, that varies in terms of their level of expertise in doing that. Um, whether this is popular to say or not, the gold standard 
is to have a psychologist who specializes in testing in either adults or children or both to do a full thorough evaluation to make a diagnosis of ADHD. Notice I also didn't mention these new computerized tests. Uh, again, these are not proper ways to diagnose ADHD. Um, you cannot sit down in front of a computer screen and go through a half hour or 45 minutes of uh, these new tests. Um, the technology is very interesting and not also quite expensive, but not the gold standard for diagnosis. Now, admittedly, having a psychologist do all this testing takes several hours, and sometimes it takes up more than two appointments, and it's rather expensive. But unfortunately, uh, that is the state of the art at the moment. Now, assuming you can get a proper diagnosis, then get treatment. Now, Medication isn't the only form of treatment. While it can work wonders, it doesn't always, and there are other therapeutic options. Um, <clears throat> there are behavioral therapies. There is ADHD coaching, which uh, focuses on giving you the tools to uh, work around your symptoms. And if you're considering marriage counseling, you need to make sure that the marital therapists has a very good understanding of ADHD. Otherwise, if they don't understand what it is and how the symptoms can affect relationships, that therapist may unintentionally do more harm than good by misinterpreting symptoms as a lack of effort. Now, the other thing that's important to make things work when you have one partner who's got ADHD, work together with empathy. Once you've recognized that ADHD is the culprit, you can attempt to stop what Ms. Orloff calls symptom response response behavior. Um, if you open a non-judgmental conversation about ADHD, then at some point your spouse would realize that you're not going to be able to control everything because you have ADHD. Then the chore is for the two of you to sit down and discuss what is most important for us as a couple. And remember this, ADHD doesn't have to define your relationship. And it can even be part of why you make a great team, she says, because you are so different. There's a real energy that comes from the fact that you're very different from each other. Right. Well, that's a very hopeful and optimistic way of looking. I kind of like that. Um, <clears throat> in a way, it's uh, very good to be able to look at your strengths and weaknesses and how you complement each other rather than to focus on uh, the problem. So for those of you who are interested, I'll mention that reference again. It's The ADHD Effect on Marriage by Melissa Orlov. But again, if you just look up, uh, references about the effect of ADHD on relationships, I'm sure you'll find many. All right, we're going to take another break. We'll be right back after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. 
What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. In the last segment, we were talking about the effect of ADHD on relationships. This next article we're going to talk about is sticking with the idea of relationships, uh, but it has to do with forgiveness. Have you ever had a problem where there was a relationship that went very wrong and you have trouble letting go of anger, resentment, uh, hurt feelings because of what happened in that relationship? Well, this article suggests six keys to forgiving and moving on. So let's take a look at those and see how helpful they are and giving my own take on it whether it's a former friend a selfish sibling or a prickly parent who fires up your temper you may find yourself in situations where you have to spend time with people you'd rather avoid while that may seem like a bad thing it's also a great opportunity to forgive and forget old beefs It's hard to feel happy when you're carrying around anger and resentment, says Andrea Brandt, uh, a Santa Monica, California-based psychotherapist and author of Mindful Anger. Dr. Brandt says, the act of forgiving can turn something negative into a powerful, life-changing experience. And here she explains how to judge whether you're ready to forgive and how to actually go about it. First, focus on what it means to forgive. Forgiveness is not an apology, and it's not a pardon for your friend or family member's bad behavior. 
this is important because a lot of people just from the get-go cannot wrap their head around the idea of, wait a minute, I can't just forgive what they did. It was horrible. That's not necessarily what forgiveness is. So she says here, forgiveness is just accepting what happened. It's acknowledging and owning your feelings and then letting them go. It's important to think of forgiveness as something you're doing for yourself, not for the person who hurt you. That's a very important distinction. So you're not saying to this person who did something horribly hurtful to you, oh, I forgive you, it's all fine. No, not at all. You're just coming at peace with yourself about what happened and letting go of the anger and resentment. Because holding on to it is only hurting you. It's not having an impact on the person who hurt you. Okay. Now, the next thing is recognize whether you're ready to let it go or not. Trying to force yourself into a hasty reconciliation is a bad idea. You need time to fully experience, examine, and release all the emotions you're feeling. That might take two months or two years. How will you know you're ready? Trust your body, Dr. Brandt advises. She says, visualize what you would say. And if that makes you tense or upset or like you want to throw up, you're not ready to forgive. All right, well, that's a very important distinction, isn't it? Now, forgive yourself is the next step. More often than not, both people involved in a fight said or did the thing that contributed to the fallout. In those situations, the biggest barrier to forgiveness can be feelings of shame or embarrassment at your own actions. Sometimes you have to forgive yourself before you can forgive the other person. That means coming to terms with the fact that no one is perfect, not even you, and that we all make mistakes. Now, this next point is a very, very important distinction, too. Uh, again, to try to help those of you who are having a lot of trouble with the idea of forgiving someone who did something hurtful to you. Forgiveness doesn't have to be spoken. That's right. In some cases, lots of them actually trying to talk through your dispute or saying the words, I forgive you, is only going to reignite the fire of your old argument. In those cases, forgiveness may be something you silently acknowledge to yourself and then demonstrate through your actions. Maybe you don't avoid her the next time you're in the same room. Or maybe you offer to pick him up at the airport. All right, that might be a little too far. I tend to disagree with her there. But she says sometimes it's better just to move on and not to revisit. Well, again, I think that relates back to one of the earlier points she makes. It's forgive means to let go of your feelings about what happened, accept that it happened and move on. It does not necessarily mean you tell the person anything at all. It's how you change your thinking about what happens. 
Okay, but she goes on to say, at other times, you've got to talk it out. If you know, you won't be able to let go and move on without hearing an apology or at least a better explanation, then at some point, you'll need to sit down and hash things out with the other person. When you're emotionally ready to go through with this, again, trust your body. Be sure to focus what you say on your own feelings or behaviors, not the other person's. Stick to I feel statements, not you did statements. If you only talk about how you feel or why you did what you did, you'll stay away from accusations or assigning blame, which can make the other person defensive and trigger arguments. Now, I think this is an excellent point, and I agree with what she's saying about how to manage a situation where you feel you can't get past it without talking it out. But honestly, I think in a lot of cases, it's much better not to bring things to some kind of confrontation like that. And uh, it may be better to just inwardly to yourself accept what happened uh, and realize that Forgiveness needn't be something you explicitly say or give to the other person. It's uh, accepting it and letting go of your feelings about it. And lastly, Dr. Brandt says to establish boundaries. Forgiving someone doesn't mean going back to the way you used to be. After all, how you used to be led to your big blow-up. For that reason, it's important to establish rules or set boundaries about your interactions with this person in a different way that will keep you from slipping back into acrimony. Maybe that means limiting the amount of time you spend with the person or avoiding certain situations or activities that you know could spell trouble whether you avoid drinking alcohol or discussing certain topics with the person or whatever the case may be, somehow setting these new boundaries around these interactions with this person is a very good idea to prevent further problems. So there you go, some hints about forgiveness when you have a very acrimonious relationship some of them may be helpful for others, some not. But again, I just want to review the idea that forgiveness is not an apology. It's not a pardon for their bad behavior. Again, she's, Dr. Brandt says, accepting what happened, acknowledging and owning your feelings, and then letting them go. And again, think of the forgiveness as something you're doing for yourself, not for the person who hurt you. And again, the book is called Mindful Anger. <clears throat> Next up on Psychiatry Today, a lot of people get overwhelmed with having too many things to do and they get themselves into a cycle of putting off the things they really don't look forward to doing and inevitably not getting to them which only adds to their stress. Uh, we naturally have a tendency to 
procrastinate the things that we don't look forward to doing, even if we're very anxious that we know we need to get them done and it's causing us stress not to get them done. Uh, for example, think about, you know, doing your tax returns. Um, and so we do everything else that we can in order to avoid doing it and uh, eventually keep putting it off until the stress builds to a very unmanageable degree uh, when we're forced to finally confront that task. So here is an article in which an expert recommends do the worst thing on your to-do list first. That doesn't sound like too much fun, does it? No, but of course, doesn't it make sense that if you take that approach, you're going to have a lot less stress, aren't you? Because you're going to get the most disagreeable thing done first. You're going to feel better having it behind you, and you'll be much better able to tackle everything else on your list, which is far less onerous. You'll stay on top of all the things you have to do, and things will be much better for you if you're only able to adopt this method. Uh, so the article goes on, maybe you carefully, gently eased yourself back into work this morning by doing pleasantly mindless tasks, like replying to emails or organizing your inbox. This routine, alas, is all wrong, according to psychology writer Eric Barker. In a new post on the things to do in the morning to set yourself up for happiness all day, he recommends starting your day by tackling your most dreaded tasks first. Barker is drawing here from the scientific literature on self-control, the bulk of which has suggested that willpower is a limited resource, something that becomes depleted as the day wears on. It's similar to the reason that behavioral scientist Dan Ariely has suggested that the first two hours of your day are likely to be your most productive. Your self-control is at its peak first thing in the morning, so this is the best time to make yourself do the stuff you would really rather not do. All right, well, we'll explore this a little further. we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after these messages. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about advice on doing the worst thing on your to-do list first. The longer people have been awake, the more self-control problems happen, according to Roy Baumeister, a psychology researcher and one of the leading experts on willpower. Uh, Therefore, he advocates start your day first thing in the morning do the most difficult, worst thing on your to-do list. Most things go bad in the evening. Diets are broken at the evening snack, not at breakfast or in the middle of the morning. Impulsive crimes are mostly committed after midnight. So his point being that willpower, judgment, and impulse control uh, are peaking in the morning. So that's why start with the most difficult thing first. And getting back to the other psychologist, Eric Barker, he says, what's the thing you're going to feel guilty about having not done? Identify that and do it first in the fleeting moments when you still have the willpower with which to get it done. Well, I would just like to add, I do think this is a good idea. And, of course, it doesn't sound like much fun, doesn't sound very tasteful at all, sounds very distasteful. Most people are like, well, you know, I can't just dive right into most difficult thing. First thing in the morning, I have to kind of work my way into it. Uh, but I think it's a very good point. Um, <clears throat> if you procrastinate the most difficult thing, that increases the chances you're not going to get it done. That's only going to add to your stress. So if you just start with that, get it over with, you'll be less stressed, and you'll have a much better day. So I do think that's a really good idea. And so if you're one of those people who always is stressed and overwhelmed by something you have trouble getting done, tackle it first. You'll feel much better. All right, next we're going to look at how what you eat can influence how you sleep. Uh, According to a new study, daily intake of fiber, saturated fat, and sugar 
may impact sleep quality. This new study found that eating less fiber, more saturated fat, and more sugar is associated with lighter, less restorative, and more disrupted sleep. Hmm. Less fiber, more saturated fat, and more sugar. Sounds like a typical American diet to me. And there you have it. So if you eat poorly like that, your sleep is going to be lighter, less restorative, and more disrupted. Now, I'll go into the rest of the research findings, but this has nothing to do with whether you're overweight from eating like that and have sleep apnea. It also has nothing to do with eating a big meal too close to bedtime, which we know disrupts sleep. The results of the study show that greater fiber intake predicted more time spent in the stage of deep, slow-wave sleep. In contrast, a higher percentage of energy from saturated fat predicted less slow-wave sleep. Greater sugar intake also was associated with more arousals from sleep. The main finding was that diet quality influenced sleep quality. It was most surprising that a single day of greater fat intake and lower fiber could influence sleep parameters. Uh, the study was published in the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. The study emphasizes the fact that diet and sleep are interwoven in the fabric of a healthy lifestyle. For optimal health, it is important to make lifestyle choices that promote healthy sleep, such as eating a nutritious diet as well as exercising regularly. The study also found that participants fell asleep faster after eating fixed meals provided by a nutritionist which were lower in saturated fat and higher in protein than self-selected meals. It took participants an average of 29 minutes to fall asleep after consuming foods and beverages of their choice, but only 17 minutes to fall asleep after eating controlled meals. The finding that diet can influence sleep has tremendous health implications given the increasing recognition of the role of sleep in the development of chronic disorders such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The randomized crossover study involved 26 adults, 13 men and 13 women, who had a normal weight and an average age of 35 years. During five nights in a sleep lab, Participants spent nine hours in bed from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., sleeping for seven hours and 35 minutes on average per night. Objective sleep data were gathered nightly. Sleep data were analyzed from night three after three days of controlled feeding and night five after one day of eating whatever they wanted to. According to the authors, the study suggests that diet-based recommendations might be used to improve sleep in those with poor sleep quality. 
However, future studies are needed to evaluate this relationship. Uh, I think the biggest concern about the study is the very, very small sample size, only 26 people, and uh, only five nights in the lab. But still, um, if this finding could be confirmed, uh, especially with larger studies and more observations over a longer period of time, then there's just another in the very long list of reasons why it's better to eat healthy, to minimize sugar and fat, and to have a healthier diet. Not only is it going to be better for your body, your heart health, uh, prevent diabetes, uh, prevent being uh, overweight, um, and it's also going to be better for your mental health. We know that uh, people who eat a healthy diet feel better and function better mentally and emotionally, but now we can also say that you'll even sleep better if you eat a better diet. Well, there you have it. All right. Now, this next item um, has to do with sleeping pills and older drivers. So if any of you listening have parents or grandparents who are elderly and still drive and maybe taking sleeping pills, you need to listen up. Or if any of you listening yourself are 65, 70 or older and still drive and maybe taking sleeping pills, then you yourself need to listen up. Drivers over age 80, and or especially women over age 70, who take the prescription sleeping pill Ambien tend to have more motor vehicle collisions. Studies in younger drivers have also shown a link between Ambien and motor vehicle collisions. But the new data extend the findings to show that older adults, specifically women, uh, again, 70 or 80 and older, have significant higher odds of motor vehicle collisions while taking Ambien. Researchers looked at 2,000 current drivers 70 years of older. They uh, looked at gender, race, marital status, retirement status, current occupation or occupation prior to retirement, alcohol and tobacco intake, chronic medical conditions, and they looked at a driving habits questionnaire, and they looked at all prescription or over-the-counter medications so researchers could review their, their pills. About 4% of the participants were taking Ambien. These people tended to have more chronic health conditions, more falls over the previous year. They tended to be taking more medications and they drove fewer miles annually than the rest of the group. Using police accident reports from the previous five years, researchers found that motor vehicle collision rates were similar for ambient users and non-users when other factors were accounted for. But specifically among women, crashes were 61% more likely for ambient users. And among drivers over 80 years old, the Ambien users were more than twice as likely to have been in a car accident in the last five years. The study was reported in the journal Sleep Medicine. When men and women take the same dose of Ambien, women tend to have higher concentrations of the drug, which may help explain these results. Motor vehicle collisions and sleep problems are significant health problems for older adults. Balancing the risks associated with elevated motor vehicle 
accident rates with the adverse health outcomes associated with poor sleep. It's a complicated issue. It has to take into account the broader perspective of a patient's overall health. A spokeswoman for Sanofi, Ambien's manufacturer, said the company treats Ambien reports with the highest degree of importance and patients should only take the medication as directed by a physician. A predictable kind of canned response. And they also said, we stand behind the robust clinical data that have demonstrated the safety and efficacy of this product since its approval in the United States in 1992, representing more than 20 years of real-world use and 24 billion nights of patient therapy worldwide. Now, the Food and Drug Administration approved label says don't take Ambien unless you're able to stay in bed a full night, seven or eight hours before you have to be active again. Other sleeping pills have also been associated with higher car accident risk. And in 2013, the Food and Drug Administration recommended that doctors prescribe low doses of sleeping pills for women and the elderly because high concentrations of this type of medication can remain in the bloodstream after awakening in the morning and therefore may interfere with driving. For older people taking Ambien, being aware of the side effects could minimize the risk of motor vehicle accidents. For people taking Ambien driving after they've been awake for an extended period of time can help the sedative to become metabolized and have a lower concentration in the blood. Better yet, avoid taking it at all and be safer driving. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.